Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll hear from poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. Image is a religious journal, but maybe not in the way you might expect. Our executive editor, Mary Kanegi Mitchell, says that we give voice to writers who are devout or full of doubt. The grapplers, the joyful, the angry, the bereaved, the confused. The connecting thread is the effort to get language and art to bear transcendent mystery. We aren't interested in ideal faith, she says, but in faith as it actually is. A faith balanced against doubt. This is why we named our annual award after Denise Levertov. Levertov's identity as a Christian believer, a pilgrim whose faith was so entwined with doubt, was an important facet of her work. Every year we present this award in partnership with Seattle Pacific University's Department of English and MFA in Creative Writing and with Seattle's Hugo House to an artist, musician, or writer whose work exemplifies a serious and sustained engagement with faith. Poet Marilyn Nelson will receive the 2019 Levertop Award in November. In 2018, Scott Cairns presented Carolyn Forche with the Levertop Award for her life's work as a poet of witness, as an activist, and as a writer whose work reflects a long engagement with faith, justice, and beauty. Forche's books of poetry are Blue Hour, The Angel of History, The Country Between Us, and Gathering the Tribes. Many readers will also know her through the anthology she edited, Against Forgetting and the Poetry of Witness. Her memoir, What You Have Heard is True, A Memoir of Resistance, was published earlier in 2019. Forche delivered the Levertop Award Lecture at Hugo House, the center for Seattle writers offering readings, classes, and community events. She began by recalling a life-changing event in Michigan State's writing program in 1968, when Dr. Linda Wagner-Martin, who taught her poetry workshop, played a recording of Denise Levertoff reading her poems. We were in Morrill Hall. That's important. It was a red brick building, very old, with buttery leaves that were turning beautiful yellow in the fall, and it was fall, and the windows were open, and it was an old seminar room with a big wooden table, and she got out a huge reel-to-reel tape recorder and played the voice of Denise Levertov to us. Denise Levertov was the voice, the first woman poet I had ever heard in my ears. She had this wonderful English accent, and the cadences were perfect, and she knew how to read poetry. And that's when I heard how poetry could sound. I had heard a man read poetry before that, so she was my second poet, but the first woman. When I was in high school, I went to a 12 years to a Catholic high school that was run by Dominican nuns who were very strict. And there was a lay teacher. We called them lay teachers for the laity, meaning not religious. 
and his name was Mr. Zielinski, and he taught creative writing. And one day, he shut and locked the door to the senior classroom and played Allen Ginsberg reading Howl to us. So that was my first poet reading aloud. So this was my second, Denise. And Denise made me feel that it was possible. Women could be poets. You know, they were even could be important enough to record and play on a reel-to-reel tape recorder. And, and that began something for me. Later, a few years ago, Moral Hall was torn down. And I received a really important gift from my alma mater. They gave me a red brick that used to be part of the building. And now I have this Denise Levertoff Award. So if you don't believe that there are weird coincidences in the universe, I hope you will now, because this is a very strange story if you think about it. Both Forche and Levertoff got into trouble with their poetry. Levertov wrote about the Vietnam War, and Forche, in her 20s, wrote about El Salvador on the brink of civil war in the country between us. Levertov, who was so influential on the younger Forche, became a colleague and a mentor. She expressed her admiration for Forche's work, calling it lyrical and engaged, saying it was the kind of work she wanted to do. I'd like to read a couple poems by Denise, just so we can hear her voice. I I don't read like her. I don't have an English accent, but I'll do my best. And these are poems I chose specifically for the times we're living through now. Um, Today, when all of my friends were saying, oh, what are we going to do? I said, well, it's not yet the siege of Leningrad, so maybe we'll be okay. We can keep going. This one's called Making Peace. A voice from the dark called out, the poets must give us imagination of peace to oust the intense familiar imagination of disaster. Peace, not only the absence of war, but peace, like a poem, is not there ahead of itself, can't be imagined before it is made can't be known except in the words of its making. Grammar of justice, syntax of mutual aid. A feeling towards it, dimly sensing a rhythm, is all we have until we begin to utter its metaphors, learning them as we speak. A line of Peace might appear if we restructured the sentence our lives are making, revoked its reaffirmation of profit and power, questioned our needs, allowed long pauses. A cadence of peace might balance its weight on that different fulcrum. Peace, a presence an energy field more intense than war might pulse then, stanza by stanza, into the world, each act of living, one of its words, each word a vibration of light, facets of the forming of a crystal. And the second one 
is at the Justice Department November 15, 1969. Brown gas fog, white beneath the street lamps, cut off on three sides, all space filled with our bodies. Bodies that stumble in brown airlessness, whitened in light, a mildew glare, that stubble hand in hand, blinded, retching, wanting it, wanting to be here, the body believing it's dying in its nausea, my head clear in its despair, a kind of joy, knowing this is by no means death, is trivial, an incident, a fragile instant, wanting it, wanting with all my hunger this anguish, this knowing in the body, the grim odds we're up against, wanting it real, up that bank where gas curled in the ivy, dragging each other up, strangers, brothers and sisters, nothing will do but to taste the bitter taste, no life other apart from. So I was very affected by this situation in the Aegean when the Aegean was becoming a tomb for so many people fleeing wars that we had prosecuted in Iraq and that we had been involved with in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Libya. So um, I wound up one winter not long ago teaching in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for the winter. And it was really cold in Milwaukee, Wisconsin with a lot of ice and snowy, it was, it was really cold. So rather than walk to the university, I would take taxi cab. I didn't have a car there. And one particular taxi driver picked me up often, really often. It was a coincidence. It was weird. No matter where I was in that little part of Milwaukee, if I you know, went and flagged down a cab, it was him. He was Syrian from Homs. And he started to talk to me after we got to know each other from some of these rides. And sometimes we'd just let the engine run and we'd just sit there and talk in the heated taxi cab. And he told me a lot of things about his life and his story. So this is called The Boatman. We were 31 souls, he said, in the gray sick of sea, in a cold rubber boat rising and falling in our filth. By morning, this didn't matter. No land was in sight. All were soaked to the bone, living and dead. We could still float, we said, from war to war. What lay behind us but ruins of stone piled on ruins of stone? City called Mother of the Poor, surrounded by fields of cotton and millet, city of jewelers and cloak makers with the oldest church in Christendom and the sword of Allah. If anyone remains there now, he assures, they would be utterly alone. 
There is a hotel named for it in Rome, 200 meters from the Piazza di Spagna, where you can have breakfast under the portraits of film stars. There, the staff cannot do enough for you. But I am talking nonsense again, as I have since that night we fetched a child, not ours, from the sea drifting face down in a life vest, its eyes taken by fish or the birds above us. After that, Aleppo went up in smoke, and Raqqa came under a rain of leaflets warning everyone to go. Leave, yes, but go where? We lived through the Americans and Russians, through Americans again, many nights of death from the clouds, mornings surprised to be waking from the sleep of death, still unburied and alive, with no safe place. Leave, yes, we'll obey the leaflets, but go where? To the sea, to be eaten, to the shores of Europe, to be caged, to camp misery, and camp remain here? I ask you then, where? You tell me you are a poet. If so, our destination is the same. I find myself now the boatman driving a taxi at the end of the world. I will see that you arrive safely, my friend. I will get you there. In the late 1970s, a man named Lionel Gomez invited Forche, then in her 20s and with just one book under her belt, to come to El Salvador, a country on the brink of war, so that she might be witness to the violence there and tell the world with her writing what she'd seen. Her new memoir, What You Have Heard Is True, tells the story of that time, her friendship with Lionel, and how she risked her life to write her 1981 collection, the Country Between Us, which includes her best-known poem, The Colonel. I, I'm going to read a little bit of this memoir, just a little. I'll tell you about it. In the Colonel poem, there was a line that said, my friend said to me with his eyes, say nothing. That friend was Leonel Gomez Vidas. He is the star of this book. He was funny, a lone wolf, a motorcycle champion racer, a marksman, a painter, a small-time coffee farmer, a social critic, possibly a guerrilla commander, and most certainly, according to some people, worked for the CIA. So he was amazing and funny and warm and a great humanitarian, and he was my guide and mentor. He was Claribel Alegria's cousin, and he invited me to El Salvador, and he was my friend for 30 years. He died on Thanksgiving Eve 2009. And I had to write this book. He, wrote, he read the first half. He liked it. He said, keep going. But he didn't read the second half. And I, I needed to finish this for many reasons. For him... And because this thing would not leave me until I wrote it, 
It took me 25 years to start this book. It took me 15 years to finish it once I started. A lot of it was written at Hedgebrook on Whidbey Island. And uh, so I, it begins with a place where they, uh, it, this was the period of the death squads in El Salvador, and there were places where they used to throw bodies, just through them. And then there's a little passage in here where I'm sick, I'm delirious, I'm a little crazy, and I thought I'd read you that one too. Um, I got dengue fever and, and dysentery, so. Lionel has brought me to El Playon. We park and walk. It is early morning and no one is here. Before stopping, he had made sure there were no other vehicles. We are alone, but as he always cautioned, don't be too sure. A loud hum of flies rose pulsing in the hot air. Lionel passes a handkerchief to me. Take this, take it. Turkey vultures hopped from corpse to corpse, grunting and hissing. They don't sing, he said. They lack vocal cords. They have no predators. They pull flesh in long strips from the corpses. A ribbon of intestines hangs from the beak. They are so fat with flesh, they are unable to fly. Their name comes from the Latin, vulturius, for terror. It is almost a play on words, isn't it? And it is easier, don't you think, to talk about birds? The stench soaks the handkerchief, but still I hold it to my mouth and almost trip on a broken bottle of flor de caña. El Playon is a lava bed, a skirt of black sponge-like stone in the lap of the volcano. There is a graveyard beside it. El Playon, the beach, is a rock strewn with refuse and sea rack a body, a tin spoon, bottle of glass, purple from the sun, a paint can, a skull with hair, shoelaces, trousers, more bodies, flocks of vultures fattening themselves on the ground, a stripped spine, a broken plate, a palm open to the rain. El Plyon is a body dump. Yolovi, Goya wrote beside his sketches. I saw it, and this, and also this. I awoke lying on a bed of ice like a fish or a corpse, the window flickering day, then night, then day. A few turkey vultures curled their talons around the bed rails, one of them hopping onto my stomach, and even though I recognized their red masks and their hissing, I knew they weren't actually there. These belching oil-colored birds, they could not be. Celine dripped through a tube from a glass bottle inverted over the bed. Silver. My arm was taped to a splint, a spot of blood on the tape. My other wrist was fastened with gauze to the opposite bed rail. I had pulled the needle out more than once, as even I could remember. I had been delirante, or whatever it was, crazy, unable to make myself understood. And I had nothing left, I knew that. Everything I had was in the toilet or in the basins, but the fever was not out. My bones were still on fire, and the fire was also in my head, burning behind my eyes. 
I couldn't think. And there was some confusion about who was in the room and who wasn't, how long it had been and why. In the darkness, Lionel had talked to me again about jaguars. Why there is a jaguar on my woven bag. Why he had given me a small weaving of a jaguar on a torn piece of cloth. He sometimes also called them wildcats. You are a wildcat, he said. You just don't know it yet. That is why I gave you these things. The wildcat can camouflage itself. It can hide anywhere. It doesn't roar like the other great cats. It is solitary and nocturnal and can adapt to many environments. The Mayans call it Balam. Certain humans have jaguar characteristics. They help with communication between the living and the dead. They are said to be extinct in El Salvador, but they are not. Someday you will understand why I'm telling you this. A nurse laid a cold washcloth over my eyes. She put something else in the tube, something to help me sleep, she said, something for the pain, just lie quietly, just rest. Again in my thoughts, we run over the man's entrails with the car until there isn't anything left to think about. My dreams are a coffin with a small window cut into the lid over a girl's face. It is not my own. Someone has written on the glass, I will not forget you. Many times I asked Lionel how it had all began for him. And finally he told me that when he was a young boy, he had come upon a foreman beating a campesino. He went into the house, took his father's shotgun, aimed it at the foreman and shouted, strike him once more and I'll blow your balls off. The foreman stopped beating the man. And that is when I learned that something could be done, he said, that there was not nothing we could do. It was quiet, a chance to ask him about the red horse. It's really quite simple, he said. The man you met in Guatemala told me several years ago that there would soon be war and that I would have a lot of work to do, but I would not have to do it alone. Someone was coming who would help, a young person with a red horse. And I thought, horse, puchica, I have no need of a goddamn horse. The young person who is coming will have to leave the horse behind, which, as it happened, you did. And then he asked if I could hear him. I nodded my head yes, and the wet cloth slipped from my eyes. It seems you have dengue fever, Papu, and also dysentery. You'll be here for a while. On the ground in front of me, there is a skull with the lower half of the jaw missing, and beside it, an empty jug that once held cooking oil. There is a picked clean skeleton splayed flat as if it were dancing with the ground. A shoe filled with blood. He's going to ask me if I know where I am. Yes, I do know. This is where they throw the bodies. They have taken blood again. The ceiling comes closer and the doorway shrinks to a smaller box of light. This will help me to sleep. It's only a tremor, Lionel had said, when the sofa I had been sitting on galloped across the tile floor to the other side of the room. The tiles clattered like stones in a surf and settled into place again. 
We have many tremors here, he said. The earth is moving beneath us, sending fire through any volcanic apparatura it can find. And many of these volcanoes are asleep, but don't kid yourself. Izalco had been sleeping too until the night of the uprising. When I was a young man, there was an earthquake in Ishkan, not far from where my advisor lives, the man who predicted you. This is how we met. I had gone to Ishkan to offer help. And what should happen but a city landed by helicopter in a remote place near a ruined village. A city made of heavy rubber balloons filled with air, balloon walls and roofs, everything pumped into place, balloon medical tent, balloon canteen, even the food rations the Americans sent were made of air. I helped, what else would I do? And that is how we met the Mayan elder and me. And ever since, he has allowed me to talk to him. And even though he doesn't have a telephone, he always seems to know when I will come to the day, almost to the hour. And always he takes a nap then. So I have to wait. I was never a patient man until then. I am still impatient. The reason they are taking your blood is that they have to monitor your platelet count. It can't go below a certain number or you will develop the hemorrhagic dengue. Your fever is high now, Papu, so you might see people who aren't here. They will come and go, so let them. It is normal. All night, I had heard cries of agony coming from somewhere close, a woman crying out as if she were being beaten, begging someone to stop crying through the glass louvers all night like that as I lay awake and didn't move. In the morning, I learned that the cries were those of a parrot in a mango tree, like the parrot saying hello to me from the terrace of the colonel's house on the night I was called upon to answer for my country's new policy on human rights, the night the colonel drank, and I learned that what my former husband had told me was true to prove a kill or for some other reason. Parts of the body were cut off, dried, and kept. I asked Lionel why bodies are mutilated, both living and dead, and he answered, to show disrespect or for some other reason. They don't wipe the blood from the knife. Read your Eduardo Galeano, Papu. When the Portuguese captain Bartolomeu Bueno do Prado came back from Rio dos Mortes in Brazil, he had 3,900 pairs of ears in his saddlebags, and this was 1759. The Scythians collected skulls and drank from them. The Tibetans had a musical instrument made from a human thigh bone. In Vietnam, as your former husband could have told you, soldiers used to string the ears on the dead, of the dead on their dog tag chains. Why be sick about this? This night, it is something for your poetry, as the colonel said. You can write about this. I'm told that I can do question and answer. Oh, there's a, you have your own microphone, just like television. So if you have, I, I'm, I'm in a very lovely space in Hugo House with all of you and so um, and I think some of you are come are poets, poetry lovers and some of you are with Image or the Glen and some of you are Hugo House people so you're all different and I'll answer anything 
that you want to ask. It's kind of like being in front of Mick Jagger for me right now. <laughs> Only better <laughs> and very different. I just teach you so much. Whole, you know, like it's well, like you meet academic superstars and they never think they're superstars, but they are to you. So I teach your introduction to Against Forgetting mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as part of a class I have on the value of art. And it's so interesting how social media has changed their access to this idea of the social space, right? right? The yeah. political, the private, yeah. the public, and the social space. And so often I've done this assignment where I want them to find an example of art that's functioning in the social space. And for a while I got really excited because they were coming up this... There's this one specific example they kept coming up with, and then I realized it was because they were just Googling, like, political art. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the same thing. Yeah. So I'm just so curious, like, with the idea... I'm also really interested in, like, the angels of history, like mm -hmm. the Walter Benjamin angel mm -hmm. of history, mm -hmm. and then Rebecca Solnit has right. the angel of alternative mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. What has changed for you about this idea of the social space? now that we have this kind of image-driven, disconnected sentence that we are building in history? Well, there's, a, you know, there's a, this technology that has enabled us to look up anything instantaneously and you know, follow ideas around the internet, down the rabbit hole. And this, this is all, I remember, of course, and many people here must remember the days of the little tin box with the index cards and copying everything out in the library. It was slow. You know, mm -hmm. and, okay, so we have that, but what we also have is it, it, it's altering our consciousness and it's altering our capacity to sustain contemplation. It's altering our readerly natures. We even read on screens differently, it has been shown, than we do on a printed page on paper. We tend to read a printed page all the way across the prose and we tend to read down the first couple of words of each line when we're reading on a screen. So we're being altered by this technology as we are altered by all technology. So first of all, I think we just, I think one thing I tell my students is be careful, unplug at least a certain amount every day read again on the page, take a walk, meditate, slow down, you know, I tell them that. To the degree that we can do that, I think that will help us also writing and reading literature helps us to sustain our capacity for contemplation. It slows us down. We need to slow down. The social space, social media, all of that, there's a certain, there are lots of things wrong with it in addition to it making us feel like we're close together. It's actually profoundly isolating and it's also too instantaneous and too anonymous. So a lot of things happen there that shouldn't happen. Things that are said that no one would really want to say in person to someone. So, you know, I, I'm not an expert on any of these effects. I just know that they are profoundly altering the human mind. Mm -hmm. And we need to take charge of ourselves in that regard. Is there anyone who you do feel like is writing in the social space then? Writing in a social space? This is a social older? space. I, yeah. I appreciate real life face-to-face -face encounters, as many of them as I can have as possible. Of course, as a writer, we all have to be alone to do our work. It's a profoundly solitary endeavor. But I think 
the, in addition to slowing down and unplugging and looking at paper, we also need to have actual social space encounters with living beings. You can do that in church. You can do that in a, a situation like this. And it's important to have more of those than not more real-life encounters than not. You've all seen it, right? Young people getting together and they're all staring at their screens instead of talking to each other. Sad. Mm -hmm. And we have to, I don't want to use the word sad. He took that word, didn't he? He took it and he's using it and so I'm not going to use it for a while. All right. So it's horrifying is what it is. <laughs> but I really, I, I'm just encouraging my students to pay attention to how much they interact with human beings with each other. We need that interaction. What the argument she's drawing from it that was made in the introduction to Against Forgetting was an argument for a space between the intimacy of the hearth and domestic life and the, and the personal and the institutions of the state. Intimacy of the hearth and the personal has eroded in, in our particular period. The institutions of the state have been, become distanced and atrophied in the interests of the money that are controlling those institutions. So we have an atrophy at both ends. The social space is enlarging, but it's artificial. Mm -hmm. I didn't anticipate that. I was just trying to carve out a space that poetry could exist in without being labeled narrowly political or solipsistically personal. Does that make sense? So, um, and, and all of these are very large questions we could spend a lot of time on, but I hope I gave you something. Well, writers sustain each other and their societies and civilizations. Thomas Paine said democracy couldn't survive without literature. He even went so far as to say that the American um, government in its early period should consider subsidizing literature so as to guarantee the democracy in the future. That, that would go over well today, wouldn't it? Amen. But, um, but we, we, well what that. we're doing in literature is that we are enlarging and sustaining each other. And what we have to do now, I think, is to stay awake, stay human with face-to-face -face encounters strive for clarity, you know? We need clarity and we need to listen and we need the cultivation of the em empathetic imagination. All of that is what literature provides. I have noticed a real resurgence, particularly of interest in poetry, but also in literature in general, because I think that in, in readings and performances, you know, when you gather together, you you hear something that comes from a genuine voice from another human. This is very important to us. And you recognize it. Like, you oh, recognize it that. immediately. Uh, you'll give you a little example in the institutional sense. Václav Havel, you remember, the first president after the, so uh, the Czechoslovakia um, was free of Soviet domination. Václav Havel was a playwright. He came to address the joint session of Congress in the United States to give an address. I have that address framed. It's huge. It's big framed piece because the address was quite substantial and long. But uh, the, the congressmen and senators of the United States were shocked when they heard this address. They were shocked because they were hearing something that Václav Havel wrote himself 
himself, himself, and that he was reading to them, delivering to them. And instead of hearing a lot of platitudes and stock phrases and political, politically correct things and politically um, nuanced, well, cadenced things, instead of hearing the, their party line, instead of it being done by a committee, instead of people pouring over it to make sure that it was all fine with the party, instead. they were hearing a human. And they were stunned by it. And they talked and talked and talked about what an amazing speech it was and how strange it was and interesting it was. They never figured out it was because he wrote it and because it was what he actually thought and he hadn't checked with anybody else, you know, because he was a new president of a now Western nation and he didn't realize that he needed a committee for every word that came out of his mouth. But that's what I mean. That's what literature does, that language, keeping that language alive. That, and I think Havel demonstrated that in the joint session of Congress. And you can see from what they're saying now that there are very few speeches that have that effect. This is genuine human voice, a manifestation of deep interiority and human subjectivity. It, I think that's very important. So, because, you know, we're going to go through a period where we're going to hear less and less of that. Partly because of the chilling effect and fear, and partly because everything becomes packaged and we start repeating the same things we're hearing rather than our own voices and words. So... What we're doing here is really important. What you are writing is important. You can't let any... Now, especially, there's no doubt. There's no doubt about it being important anymore. You've been listening to The Image Podcast, produced by Cassidy Hall. Our music is by Sister Sinjin. For more information on the Levertov Award and to subscribe to the print journal, please visit the Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There you can also learn more about all previous episodes of this podcast and find our show notes, links to books, and other resources discussed. You can also access back issues of the journal through the Image Archive. We'll be back in two weeks with more exploration of art, faith, and mystery.